Right, welcome, uh, ladies and gentlemen, to CSIS. Um, Dr. Mark Moore, Director of the Project on Military and Diplomatic History. Uh, also want to thank uh, Madam Ambassador from Morocco for joining us uh, today. Or it's a pleasure to have you uh, joining us on this uh, memorable uh, occasion and anniversary. Um, I'll talk just very briefly. We're a new program here. Uh, started about four months ago, uh, we, tend, we promote history that offers some insights into our contemporary world. We think that military and diplomatic history haven't uh, always received the attention they deserve in the academic world, in the policy world, uh, and the broader world. Uh, point out a couple of upcoming events. Uh, in case you are free next week, we have uh, Victor Davis Hanson coming on November 13th. Serhi Plucky of Harvard coming on the 17th, talk about Russia. If you're not on our mailing list already, you can go to the CSI website, uh, look on programs for Project on Military and Diplomatic History, and uh, there's a tab there. Uh, and you know, a lot of programs like to focus on uh, big name scholars like the ones we have next week, uh, but we also um, uh, like to feature uh, younger scholars as well. Um, including today's speaker, who's just published her first book, uh, because becoming a household name requires uh, getting some opportunities when you're a junior scholar so that you can reach a larger audience, and so we're pleased to be able to provide opportunities like that. Uh, and we appreciate also those of you who come to see uh, not only the uh, world-renowned uh, uh, speakers, but also the, uh, the up-and-comers. Um, we do also have a strong web presence uh, we've been getting um, over 1,000 views on a lot of our events on YouTube. We have got over 25,000 views on the Ken Burns event we did uh, recently. Uh, and for those of you who are watching on the live stream, you can tweet questions to at CSISPMDH for CSIS Program Military and Diplomatic History. Uh, we do encourage people to come to our events in live. Uh, live. Uh, for one thing, uh, it promotes interaction, person-to-person -person interaction uh, before and after the events. Uh, hopefully you've all brought business cards and uh, you'll be able to come away from this event meeting new people who share your interest in history uh, and current events. Uh, and we do also, uh, as an added incentive to come to the events, have food and beverage uh, and we have that uh, after the event today too. So please stick around and join us afterwards. Uh, up where the coffee is, we will have drinks of a, a stiffer sort. Um, so as you may know, 70, yesterday was the 75th anniversary of the start of Operation Torch, uh, 75 years ago. Today, the Allied forces were still uh, coming ashore in North Africa. Uh, and one of the challenges of history is uh, overcoming the tendency to view events uh, as if we already knew the outcome because uh, if you really want to understand uh, history, you have to know that people at the time really didn't know what, what uh, the outcome was going to be. Uh, and looking back 75 years ago, I think people would have had a lot of reason to be skeptical about how this was going to all turn out. Uh, in you know, November of 1942, the fascist powers controlled nearly all of the uh, European continent. The German army was... Uh, running rampant in Eastern Europe uh, on the verge of taking Stalingrad. Hitler controlled much of North Africa. Uh, Japan dominated the Pacific. 
and there, there was a lot of skepticism about going into North Africa, including from the Joint Chiefs who uh, thought Roosevelt was doing it to get votes for Democrats in the midterm congressional election. Uh, Joseph Stalin and others were upset that the United States wasn't going into Europe. Um, uh, earlier today, I was at an event where we were talking about how to get people in the foreign policy world interested in uh, history and to pay attention to it. And one point that I like to emphasize is the, the uh, inclusion of entertaining stories, because almost no one will read a dry academic book in their uh, spare time, certainly not in the foreign policy community. And one of the, one of the virtues of this book, uh, which I, we have a copy here, Destination Casablanca, is that it in, intermingles engaging anecdotes with historical analysis. Uh, so think of it as the movie Casablanca meeting PBS. Um, and our author provides history not just for its own sake, but also for its insights into the world today. And she's going to be talking about that. So I won't steal uh, her thunder, but I will uh, provide a brief introduction. Um, also make sure to note that there will be books for sale after the event outside there. So if you don't have one, you can get one. There, but, uh, Dr. Meredith Hinley is a native of Colorado, currently lives in Washington, D.C. She attended the University of Wyoming and received a Ph.D. in history from American University. She's senior writer for Humanities, the quarterly review of the National Endowment for the Humanities. On uh, her work has appeared in that publication, the New York Times, Salon, Christian Science Monitor, Long Reads, and Barnes and Noble Review. And her first book, uh, about which she's going to speak today is this one. The full title is Destination Casablanca, Exile, Espionage, and the Battle for North Africa in World War II. So please join me in welcoming Meredith Hindley. Thank you, Mark, for that very kind introduction, and thank you all for joining us today. I'm excited to be able to talk about this book here at CSIS. Um, so it's kind of hard to talk about Casablanca without, well, this is working, talking about the movie. <laughs> I know you're all shocked. Um, but so the movie does certain things very well in the way it reflects history. One of the ways is it tells the refugee story. And it also tells and also depicts the tension between collaboration and resistance. But one of the things it does not do, somehow forgets to omit the Casablanca is a port. It's a port city. It's a big, gritty, exciting, vibrant port, North African port city. And that would be important to its history during World War II. But let's start, I'm gonna, so before we dive into World War II, I'm gonna talk a little bit about Casablanca itself to give you a little orientation, because it's actually more than the movie. Casablanca, uh, was founded by the Berbers, um, and it grew into a nice little fishing village in Port City, and this is an illustration of it in the 15th, 16th century. It would become a favorite fishing port, and then it would become a favorite port for pirates who would take refuge along the coast. Um, you would eventually know them as the Barbary pirates. Um, the Portuguese would get upset about the pirates raiding uh, their ships, and they would come and they would raise the city, they would build a kasbah, and then they would leave. The port would continue to grow, although it would continue not to be as prosperous or as important as Tangier to the north. 
the Alawite dynasty in the 19th century decided to start investing some money into Casablanca as a way to sort of have another exit point for trade in Morocco. But Casablanca's fortunes would really change with the Treaty of Fez in 1912. Morocco managed to hold out against French colonial, against, the, against the European colonialism until the 20th century. It's kind of amazing. Um, but it would eventually lose out. And in 1912, the Treaty of Fez would divide up the Kingdom of Morocco. The top one-fourth would become Spanish Morocco. The Tangier, which everybody wanted, would become a international free trade zone, international city. And the bottom three forts would become the French, the French Protectorate of Morocco. The French would install on top of the existing sultanate a protectorate. And it would install colonial administration. That means that the French controlled diplomacy, economics, and military. And it left the sultan in charge so that he could continue to be a, um, so he could continue to help have, um, be a uh, bridge to the royal families in Morocco. He could also have responsibility for the spiritual life of the people, but the French were really in charge. And this picture here is resident Charles Nogas, who is in charge of Morocco at the time of World War II um, with Sidi Mohammed, the Sultan, and his son, Prince Hassan II, who would become uh, King Hassan. The arrival of the French in Casablanca and in Morocco would transform the city. So this is Casablanca in 1900 in the upper corner. It's kind of a wild west kind of town. But the rival with the French, the French would basically do to Casablanca what they did to Paris in the 19th century. They would, with housemanization. They would create boulevards. They would create apartment blocks. They would create a sort of radical, a um, rational grid along the city. And they would make it their own. The, um, and they would make it their own, and it would become a sprawling, vibrant city. As part of that rejuvenation, they redid the port. And the idea was that if they couldn't have Tangier, then they would turn Casablanca into the largest port on the Atlantic in Africa. And that's exactly what they did. So this is a picture of the port in 1940. You can see it's modern, it's huge, and this, and the poster with the cat, had to put it in. Um, is, uh, is part of a tourism campaign that they launched to try and get uh, tourists to come to Casablanca instead of going to Tangier, because traditionally, tourists would go to Tangier and take the train down to Fez and to Marrakesh. But the French hoped they instead they would come to Casablanca. Um, much to their dismay, it didn't work very well, although they built like very nice port facilities to try and process people. This is Casablanca in 1940. In 1916, it had, a, it had been a city of 67,000 people. By 1940, it was a city of 350,000. It, it grows exponentially, it's massive. Up in the left corner is the old Medina. It's the old part of the city that had grown up around the Casba that the Portuguese had built. And then all of this below is the new French colonial city. You notice it's white. That's because Casablanca got its nickname for originally in 15th and 16th century for the whitewash buildings. When the French built the city, they continued to use the whitewash, except they sort of instilled Art Deco flair with it and sort of French architecture. 
So you still have an amazing white city. So this is Casablanca in 1940 as the war begins. When, now, so keep in mind that French Morocco and Casablanca are a French colony. When the Germans march into France in May of 1940, it kicks off a massive refugee exodus. And it would also lead to the defeat of France and the signing of an armistice in June of 1940. As part of the armistice, it would create unoccupied, it would call, create occupied France, which the Germans controlled, and also Vichy France. As part of the armistice, Vichy France would get to keep the colonies. This meant that French Morocco and Casablanca became part of Vichy France. As the refugee exodus began, everybody started going south. Some went to Bordeaux, but the majority, and we're talking millions of people taking to the roads in France, tried to head to Marseille. And from Marseille, the idea was to get a boat. And there were a, very, a variety of different uh, routes, that, ways that you could get to Casablanca from Marseille. You could go across to Algiers and then take another boat onto Casablanca, or you could get on the train. The same thing went with Oran, um, which is right up, right up here, um, and take a train. Or you could simply get on a boat and go directly to Casablanca. That was a possibility, too. Now, so this is where the movie is correct. Once you get to Casablanca, you have to get out. And one of the best ways to get out is through Lisbon, which means you have to go north. But there was also a very large traffic early in the war of refugees that would go from Marseille to Casablanca to the Caribbean. But as the war progresses, that route shuts down. So the arrival of the refugees in 1940 causes a massive humanitarian problem in Casablanca. In the summer of 1940, 200 ships arrive off the port carrying refugees. The city is flooded, and the housing shortages begin, and um, housing shortages begin, food shortages begin, and it creates sort of a humanitarian crisis. A lot of the refugees would end up at the U.S. consulate. The U.S. consulate was not designed to deal with the refugee crisis that unfolded. It was designed to take care of American businessmen. In fact, there were only 400, in fact, there were only 106, just over 100 Americans in all of French Morocco in 1939. So all of a sudden, there are 200, every, each day, there are two people in line at the American consulate looking for help, looking for advice, looking for visas, looking for information about how to get passage across the Atlantic, looking for advice on where to sell their jewels, looking for a compassionate ear. But also, the fact that the refugee, refugees begin to grow in the city means that the French begin to take steps to deal with them. And in the fall of 1940, they begin the first of what would be a series of internment camps for refugees in French Morocco. Herbert Gould, who is the general counsel for the United States in Casablanca, would visit one of the camps. And he would say that it was evidence that the French regime was failing its, its mission to be a fraternity, egality, and, I don't know, um, liberty. liberty. Thank you. <laughs> um, and he would be so disappointed in the way that things were going. As the refugees came, so too did Vichy. And with it, in the fall of 1940, the beginning of anti-Semitic legislation. And 
increasingly um, restrictive laws about refugees and other foreigners. Um, this is a this is a law court in Casablanca. It's part of the main central square, and this is an induction ceremony that occurs in the beginning of 1941 to uh, enlist former veterans into the Vichy organization. There are 10,000 men in this square, um, French men in this square, swearing allegiance to Henri Philippe Pétain, the head of the Vichy regime. Now then. In the summer of 1940, the British sink the French fleet at Marital Kabir, and that permanently severs relations between France and Britain. This means that there needs to be a liaison between, British, between the British and, the, and Vichy. Enter the Americans. If the Americans were already important to the refugees in, in, Vichy, in um, Casablanca, the Americans were about to become important to Vichy. Roosevelt, being Roosevelt, had the idea that he might be able to forge some ties with Vichy. And one of the ways that he could do that is to provide food aid to North Africa, which was already suffering from shortages because of German extractions. Basically, the Germans were already there. The Armistice Commission was there. They were taking accounts of what was available, and they were already beginning to ship material, sorry, um, food and minerals and other war products out and up to France and onto Germany, which meant the food shortages had begun. Roosevelt thought that if they could provide some food aid, that might be a good way to, you know, keep some diplomatic channels open. And so he sent Robert Murphy, who was then the charge at the Vichy Embassy, to go on an inspection tour and meet with Maxime Weygand, who was now the High Commissioner of North Africa. Weygand had been one of the architects of the Vichy regime. He had helped found it, but he had fallen out of favor because he wasn't too keen on collaborating with Germany, which made him the perfect person to sort of forge an allegiance with, although Weygand is a basically in it for himself. Robert Murphy and discussions with Maxime Wigan results in the proposal for what's known as the North African Economic Agreement. It's also better known as the murphy wigan Agreement. What it called for was shipments of food to North Africa. But the British didn't like this because it would mean shipping food through the blockade and it would punch another hole in the blockade. So they said, fine, if you're going to do this, then you have to, um, so fine, if you're gonna do this, then you have to have observers to make sure that none of this food goes to Germany from North Africa. The Americans agree, and they select 12 men. They become known as the apostles. They also become the, the origins of the first American intelligence spy network in North Africa. Up until this point, the Americans had relied on the French and the British for intelligence. North Africa just wasn't on our radar. It wasn't something that we paid attention to. We didn't really have any expertise in it. We didn't feel the need to have any expertise in it. So we just, you know, depended on the British and French, we'd get some intelligence. Um, so when they went looking for people to staff this new, um, these new positions of observers slash intelligence agents, they discovered they didn't have any expertise. There was no one in all of American military intelligence who spoke Arabic. Instead, what they had to do was recruit people who spoke French. 
and they ended up recruiting a bunch of veterans from World War I. Two of the men who become incredibly important to the American intelligence operation during World War II in Casablanca are Staff Reed and Dave King. Staff Reed is a veteran of World War I. He was an intelligence officer, and he spent the intermediate, uh, the interwar period working on, his working on his real estate portfolio in New York. Dave King is a little more of a maybe sort of Elizabethan-style adventurer. He left Harvard to join the French Foreign Legion in World War I um, and goes off and fights uh, for France. And then when the Americans join, he joins the American Army. And then he also uh, does intelligence. He spends the war doing some adventuring in Central Asia, Ethiopia, collecting a series of wives. Um, and so they basically become the genesis of Ameri the American intelligence uh, network in, out of Casablanca. Staff Reed becomes responsible for communications, and Dave King becomes responsible for relations with the burgeoning resistance movement in Casablanca and in French Morocco. They originally start out as members of the State Department. They're called vice councils. Then they are, this is why I have this chart over then they are absorbed after Pearl Harbor by Donovan as coordinator of information, and then they become members of the Office of Strategic Services once that is created. Um, so you can tell, you can see here sort of the evolution, also the evolution of sort of American intelligence capabilities during the war. Now, the information that Staff Reed and Dave King collect as part of their job becomes very important in the summer of 1940 when Roosevelt and Churchill decide to invade North Africa. The Allies need to open a second front in Europe. Stalin is taking the brunt of the fighting. He is angry. He wants the Allies, Americans and the United States, I'm sorry, the American, sorry, the United States and Britain to contribute to the fight. He wants them, he wants a front in the West to take the pressure off. But the problem is, the, Ameri the problem is that we are not in position to launch a cross-channel attack as in what would become D-Day in 1944 at that moment in 1942. The men and material weren't available. But Churchill, Churchill always has a scheme. And the scheme that he presses and the scheme that captures Roosevelt's mind and his imagination is an invasion of North Africa. The idea is that if they invade North Africa, then they can use it as a springboard to jump across the Mediterranean. From North Africa, they can jump to southern France, to Greece, to Italy, to Sicily and have a logistical hub for the southern part of the war. Roosevelt, I'm sorry, uh, Marshall and Eisenhower are not keen on this operation at all. And they try and talk them out of it and they lose that battle. Now then, it was not guaranteed that Casablanca would be on the list of targets. And in fact, there would be a big fight over what the targets would end up being for Operation Torch. It would result in a two-week exchange of telegrams between Roosevelt and Churchill at the end of August and the beginning of September over choosing where the, um, where the various task forces would land. Eisenhower would call it the transatlantic essay contest because in his very snarky kind of way, it's a very, such a great, kind of a great takedown on Eisenhower's part, where they finally settle. 
And Casablanca is on the list. Casablanca, however, is a risky choice. And actually, French Morocco is a risky choice. Because in November, the Atlantic Ocean, the Atlantic seas are only calm one out of every five days, which means that on the other five days, landing craft are going to be smashed on the shore. It's a risky operation because of Mother Nature. The French think it's ridiculous that anybody would invade in November, so much so that they send half of the forces that normally guard the coast to winter quarters and the interior. They just think that it's just, it's crazy. The Americans decide to go ahead and attack anyway. The Western, the uh, assault on, excuse me, the Moroccan part of Operation Torch would be led by Major General George S. Patton, I'm sure you know that name, and Admiral Kent Hewitt. Uh, Hewitt would be responsible for delivering the task force across the Atlantic. From five points along the coast, the task force, um, fire, the task force, 33, the task force containing 33,000 men departs from five different points along the Atlantic coast and in the Caribbean. They meet up in the middle of the Atlantic and they form a convoy that is 20 miles by 30 miles wide. This is a picture of the convoy. Do you notice there's like a checkerboard formation? They're not detected as they go across the Atlantic. Now, in the day, now just think about that for a moment in terms of our current technology. It's unbelievable that they'd be able to slip across the Atlantic undetected, um, but they did. There were some German submarines sort of hunting around the edges, but they were able to be pushed away. So they arrive off the coast undetected, and they're going in on November 7th, the fleet divides up to depart to three different locations along the Moroccan coast. Medea, the northern group is going to attack Medea, the center group is going to attack Fadala, which is just north of Casablanca, and the southern group is going to go in at Safi. Safi is the only port other than Casablanca capable of unloading the tanks that Patton wants in order to um, assault Casablanca. Now you notice uh, I'm not, what's not on this list? Casablanca. It's because it was decided that a frontal assault on Casablanca was too dangerous. And the idea was that the forces would come, come ashore at the three different points, and then they would converge on Casablanca. In the meantime, this is actually the landing, this is the landing at Fadala. You can see the coast and some of the landing craft. Um, even though the sea is fairly calm on the first day, uh, the landing craft are still chewed up on the beaches, and uh, the sh uh, trucks get stuck in the sand. Kind of a nice object lesson for uh, the military. In Casablanca, Kent Hewitt and his naval forces are left to deal with what's left of the French Navy. After Marisol Kabir, the French Navy takes uh, refuge, part of the French Navy takes refuge in Casablanca, and with the arrival of the Americans, they come out to fight. The U.S. Navy destroys them and turns the harbor at Casablanca into a cemetery. They just demolish the French Navy. The fighting happens on the first day and also a little bit on the second day. The Western Task Force under Patton and with Hewitt would take uh, French Morocco in 74 hours. 
despite the French would put up a fight. In some cases, it's very vigorous. In other places, it's not so vigorous. There are a lot of delayed orders. There are a lot of delays in how and you know, troops rolling out. It's not exactly excited about fighting. But in any event, 74 hours. Casablanca was scheduled to be bombed into submission on the morning of November 11th. Patton, um, if Nogues hadn't agreed to the ceasefire, Patton would have gone ahead. The ceasefire comes through at 6.30, I'm sorry, at 6 o'clock in the morning. The bombing was scheduled to begin at 7.30. So Casablanca barely escapes being bombed and submit into submission. Now, as this drama in Morocco is unfolding, there's another drama in unfolding in Algiers. which would have a great independent, um, would have a large influence on how, on how post, on how the post operations go. When they agreed to this operation, the Americans were told by the French resistance in Algiers that if they came, that the Americans came in large numbers, that the French would rise up and they would support them that the French army would join them and they would support them. That if they brought Henri Giraud, who's a general um, who had just escaped a POW camp and is considered to be a hero, that if they bring him, then the French army will follow him. That the Americans would have the French army and they could join with the allies and they could fight in Tunisia. Yeah, that doesn't really happen. Um, instead, they discover that the army is incredibly suspicious of anyone who had joined the resistance and fought for the Americans. They consider those who had joined the resistance as traitors because they had betrayed their fellow soldiers. They weren't too keen on Giraud. And then adding to the complications was the presence of Jean-Francois Darlan in Algiers. Darlan is Minister of the Marine. He is one of the architects of Vichy, one of the most powerful men in Vichy. He happens to be there visiting his son, who's sick with polio. This is an incredibly bad piece of luck. And it complicates things because they really, if they don't really want to join with Giraud, they really don't want to join with Giraud if Darlan is there. Because he is the moral authority, he is the moral center, and he has the power. And so Mark Clark finds himself negotiating with Darlan in Algiers. They first find a temporary ceasefire, and the fighting, and then they have to sort of come up with an armistice. And in the end, Eisenhower has to sign up on the deal. And the deal is a choice between putting Darlan in prison or letting him be High Commissioner of Africa so that the Allies, the Americans and the British, can acquire the French army and begin fighting in Tunisia, which is part of the reason they were coming to North Africa. Along with the logistical reasons for coming to North Africa, the Allies also wanted to put troops in the field in Tunisia to begin to counter Rommel and Rommel in the desert. The idea was the British would close in from Egypt, the, Ameri um, the new American forces and some British would close in from the west and they would try and squeeze Rommel. It is a terrible deal. It's called the Darlan deal. And it would sour what was an incredibly successful operation. In fact, when they find out about it in the United States, it causes a massive PR storm also in Britain. 
Churchill is angry. He thinks that Giroux has been intentionally left out of the equation. Roosevelt is worried that there's something about North Africa that turns everybody fascist. And he, right, he's worried that Eisenhower and Mark Clark have all of a sudden joined up with Vichy. And what is it that goes on over there that turns everybody? But it was a decision that was made out of military expediency rather than um, out, of, out of military expediency. Eisenhower needed the French troops to start fighting. The Americans also did not bring enough men to occupy, to serve as an occupation force in either French Morocco or in Algeria. They simply could not go in and replace all of the French administrators. So they leave in the Vichy, um, they leave in the Vichy administrators. Darlan takes over, but Eisenhower would have no regrets. And on November 18th, one week later, he's in Casablanca. And he's watching Casablanca be the logistical hub that he thought it would be. He watches as 30,000 troops are offloaded from the second convoy that has arrived in Casablanca. 30,000 troops in 13 hours because of the cooperation between the Americans and the French working together. And as he says, as he writes to, he writes to Marshall, I value this aid more than the active participation of their troops. We have these advantages through the influence of the entire group through which we have worked, the entire group being Darlan. The problem with making a deal with the devil or making a, this sort of deal is that you lose, you basically lose the aftermath. And this is one of the big lessons of Torch, is that by is that while Eisenhower would be able to get Darlan to do the things that he wanted, at least initially, and to aid military, it meant that Vichy officials were still in charge in both uh, Morocco and in Algeria. That would have implications for the refugees. I'm gonna circle back to the refugees now. Over the, past, over the previous two years, the internment camp system had grown and then also work camps had developed. Um, some of these are incredibly brutal. This is a picture of a work camp um, out in the Sahara Desert to build a Trans-Saharan Railway. Um, and these camps are awful. It's very easy to wind up in one. You simply had to be a Spanish Republican. You had to be Jewish. You could, had to be Hungarian, Russian. Perhaps you ran out of money um, and you're a refugee who can't get out of Casablanca, who can't get out of Morocco. And so you simply become, as the French protectorate considers, a charge on the state. And so you're shipped off to one of these camps. The Allies want the camps emptied. Eisenhower and Roosevelt say that the camps are going to be emptied. But because the French Vichy officials are kept in charge, anti-Semitic legislation stays on the books, and the camps also stay open. It would take the Allies nine months to empty the camps from the time that they say they're going to do it until it finally happens. And here is one, and this is, I think, one of the problems of, keep, of you know, sort of losing the aftermath, is that if you keep people in charge who are going to continue the policies that they have been um, employing for the previous two years, it's hard to facilitate the type of change that you want in post-conflict. So it would take nine months to close down so it would take nine months to close down the camps. All right, I'm gonna come back to the movie just one last time. <laughs> 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 
We, um, when we talk about Casablanca today, and someone says the word Casablanca, this is actually usually what, you, what we talk about, we think of, it's the movie. Um, it's actually the 75th anniversary of the movie um, at Thanksgiving. Um, Warner Brothers, um, when, when Americans opened up their papers on November 8th and 9th today, they would have seen the word Casablanca in news stories. They would have seen it in, in headlines. And Warner Brothers said, hey, we just finished a film in the summer called Casablanca. Huh. So they had planned to uh, launch this, um, they had planned to uh, release the movie in the spring of 1943. Instead, they move up the premiere. And they premiere it um, at Thanksgiving in 1942. And then they show it in LA, which qualifies it for the Oscars, which is why Casablanca is um, uh, up for the Oscars in 1942. But it wouldn't go into wide release into 1943. As we think about Operation Torch and why Casablanca, and why we don't, as we think about Operation Torch, one of the mysteries of Operation Torch is why we don't talk about it the way that we talk about D-Day. But I actually don't, as I, even though I just said it was a mystery, it's not really a mystery. It is an incredibly successful operation, but it is an operation that comes with incredibly messy politics, politics that are often difficult to understand, difficult to stomach, and it is not a particularly heroic narrative in the way that D-Day is. Indeed, um, with the invasion of France, it's the Commonwealth and the Americans invading France to liberate the Germans. With Operation Torch, it's the Americans and a handful of Brits invading to fight France and liberate French colonies, only to keep the French in charge. That's incredibly messy, which is too bad, because it means that we don't acknowledge the sacrifices that Amer Americans made in Morocco and in Algeria. And I'm gonna close with this picture. This is a temporary cemetery that was established outside of Casablanca for the dead of both the French and the Americans during Operation Torch. So that, I'll take, with that, um, I will take questions. Hello, Hi. Rosie Berman, job hunting. Oh. <laughs> My question has to do with some other people involved. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how indigenous Moroccans, Algerians, Tunisians, etc., perceived these events and whether they tried to influence any outcomes related to their own autonomy. So the, it's a very good question. Um, Thank you. Primarily Operation Torch um, in, was, um, so there were Moroccan units staffed by, uh, there were Mor Moroccan units that defended, Mor uh, defended uh, there were Algerian units and Moroccan units that defended both Algeria and Morocco. But for the most part, indigenous Moroccans and Algerians were on the sidelines during this. There were certain members who were, there were some that were members of uh, the resistance, particularly in Algeria, but in Morocco, for the most part, the resistance was, stat was filled with um, uh, Europeans, uh, primarily French expats, 
but what the but what the arrival of the Americans would do would begin to disrupt the order in Morocco and it would help bring and help rejuvenate the Moroccan nationalist movement and so you get the you get the the rumblings again and in because they begin to understand that the French aren't as powerful as they had been led to believe. Also, the Moroccan nationalists who had been sent into exile return. And in January 1940, you get the first uh, manifesto of uh, the Istiqlal Party, which is the independence party, um, asking for independence. And so, in a sense, the disruption caused, the arrival of the Americans and the disruption caused by Operation Torch helps spur along Moroccan nationalism and would lead to independence in uh, the mid-50s. Please. I'm Larbi, I'm the uh, cultural attaché of the Moroccan embassy. And I just wanted to add that uh, uh, late King Sultan Mohammed V, Sidi Mohammed at that moment, mm -hmm. attended the uh, conference of Anfa and he brought all his support, I mean, to Roosevelt and, uh, and Churchill. And um, late King Hassan II, he was crown prince at that moment, was there as well. He mm -hmm. was very young, I think right. that he was 14, was at that conference. So that was really, I mean, to bring all the support of the monarchy, mm -hmm. of the king, as uh, had the spiritual head of Morocco, as you right. named him and as well as the ruler, the real ruler. The French people were not very happy with his presence no, in that not. conference. And they uh, just, I mean, they uh, told him as a support, as a sort of uh, tribute to his support, they promised him that after the war, Morocco would be uh, freed from French people from, and Spanish. Right. Well, they. Uh, Morocco got his independence 16 years after. Right. Uh, tw no, sorry, 12 years after. This is just to add it. And all the Moroccans were really I mean, supporting the Allies, and they uh, fight with them. And as a matter of fact, they went, uh, they liberated Montecatini, for instance, uh, and many, many other parts of Europe. Thank you. So the Moroccans fought. Uh, for France and France as part of the uh, defense of France when the Germans invaded. And as uh, what he said about the Casablanca conference, uh, there's a great conversation that goes on there between the Sultan and Roosevelt, and it drives both Nogues and Churchill crazy. Because Roosevelt and the Sultan start talking about how the Americans can help the Moroccans, how they can help them become more self-sufficient, how they can bring more engineers, how can they, they can improve the educational system. And oh my goodness, it sounds like you're going to challenge the French authority, and we really can't have this during the war. And it, it's just unnerving to both Churchill and no guess. There is a meeting the following day between the Sultan's advisor and Roosevelt's advisor, Harry Hopkins, and the Sultan's advisor hopes that the Americans will give a um, pledge to support an uh, independent Moroccan state, but Hopkins is very savvy, and he says, well, at this time, no, we really can't, we can't make any promises. And really, the Americans were very reluctant to make promises to the Moroccans because they thought they would probably, they didn't want to disrupt the French, 
and they felt that they would probably need to support the French after the war, which means that this great conversation that happens does not result in the support that the Sultan would hope, and it would help and it would delay, without American support, um, Moroccan uh, independence. It didn't come as quickly as it should have. I'm from the Women's National Democratic Club, mm -hmm. a couple of streets up. <laughs> um, I was wondering about uh, Marshal Leclerc, um, head of the Free French Forces in Africa. He um, was he in in um, Morocco and Casa. Uh, I, I know he was. I'm sorry, Marshal Leclerc. Uh, Leclerc. Leclerc. Um, was he in Casablanca at this time, galvanizing the support of the Free French? Um, getting the total support of the the Moroccans, indigenous Moroccans of the time. Um, so that's my, my question. And my second question is, um, the Jewish peoples in Morocco mm -hmm. at this time, how were they treated by the Vichy French and um, what, what was happening to them? Okay, so uh, French resistance in Morocco is um, and was incredibly buried. Um, it was, it, uh, after the war, the sort of the myth rise up that everybody was a member, of the, that everybody was a Gaullist, which in, was not the case. Um, they were very suspicious of Charles de Gaulle, um, but, they, but there was sort of a resistance that developed um, independent of him. Um, and so you could be in the resistance and you could be a Catholic, you could be a monarchist, you could be a socialist, you could be a communist. And so it was a very fairly divorce, um, diverse movement. Um, it generally did not involve uh, uh, Moroccans because it was sort of, um, because the French controlled um, the elite institutions, the military, the um, and uh, a lot of the economic resources. And so if you're forging a uh, resistance movement, what you want to do is you want to get moles into important places. You want to recruit soldiers. You want to rec recruit people with power. And that, unfortunately, was primarily Europeans. Um, as for the indigenous Jews, as for the Moroccan Jews, the legislation enacted by Vichy affected them. They would be stripped of their rights. They would lose. Uh, the, the, the legislation that covered the professions, which meant that you could not work in certain professions like media, law, anything that had to do with influencing public opinion, that meant um, Jews would lose uh, their ability to be in those professions. There were also orders. There was also an order to, at one point, for all the Jews who live in the European quarters to return to the Mela, which is the traditional Jewish quarters in all the city. That was not possible in Casablanca because it was too full. Uh, but it did happen in Fez, it did happen in Meknes. Um, Jews also um, received, if you're doing the pecking order for rations in Morocco, Europeans are at the top, Moroccans are second, and Jews were third. So they are treated as third-class citizens and they are subject to the same um, and eventually they, the Vichy regulations are imported, although we never get to the point where they are rounded up. Never get to the point where they are required to have special passports or wear stars or anything like that. hope that answers your question. Of course. I'm sorry, I'm not. Well, just in 12, there are 12 of them. They never 
or the uh, yellow star. Right. Simply because, well, uh, um, Hitler sent a uh, emissary to, to um, the Sultan asking for the Jewish to be deported. I mean, to, and he said, well, first of all, if you want to deport someone, start with me. Yeah, yeah, start with me. And uh, they are my citizens, they are Moroccans, and nobody is allowed, I mean, to uh, threaten their life. So, uh, uh, of course, we were under protectorate of French Vichy, and we were Moroccans, I mean, the, the rulers at that moment had to struggle with those roles, rules, but at the end of the day, no one, I mean, from the Jewish community, Moroccan Jewish community, and even, you know, that in Tanger, you were talking about Tanger, uh, like uh, uh, 10,000 uh, Jewish people from Poland came in exile to Tanger, and they were safe there. Any, yeah, and anyway, uh, well, this is history, and it's known everywhere. I mean, it's documented, and uh, you can find all this. And uh, so, nobody, I mean, uh, uh, the, the Germans, nor the French, Vichy French, could, I mean, threaten the life of the Jewish in Morocco. And simply because, as I said, they were. And as a matter, a matter of fact, I mean, uh, late Sultan Mohammed V is going to be done a tribute, a very special tribute to his, uh, I mean, what he achieved during that period. He's going to be named as a wise of Israel, yeah, yeah of the state of, uh, by the Holocaust Museum of DC. Mm. Are there any other questions? Yeah, thank you. Uh, could you elaborate? Was there any difference between Spanish Morocco and French Morocco in, 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 during the, the process? Can I talk about the difference? Mm -hmm. uh, so Spanish Morocco uh, ruled by, I mean, it was ruled by Spain. Um, it was had a completely separate government. Uh, and a French Morocco governed by the French. Um, Tangier is international city. Um, Spain would act during the war. Spain would actually invade uh, Tangier and take it over. And it becomes a nice little um, hub of Spanish and uh, German intrigue. Um, so the Germans are not in Morocco in large numbers. They're there for the economic, they, the German Armistice Commission is there and the Gestapo is there, but German troops are not there. The Germans are in Tangier in force. Your question? Over there. Uh, I, I'm delighted just when I got here to see that your book talks about the movie. I, that, <laughs> that, um, I'm much more familiar with that than, uh, than the military history. And that's actually sort of what led me to think of my question. When you think about World War II, there's Pearl Harbor, there's D-Day, there's Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. To what extent was Casablanca and the North African part of the public perception of what was going on and did that, uh, this may be beyond what you can talk about, but did that lead to the idea that they'd make a movie? Um, no, the movie was already done before the invasion. Ah. It, it had already been written, it had already been done, it had already been filmed. 
Um, and so when the, you know, everyone woke up on November uh, 9th to news that the Americans and British had come ashore in, the Americans were actually outside of Casablanca and there was a naval battle going on. That's when Warner Brothers was very thrilled because they now have this movie called Casablanca and the fighting's going on in Casablanca and it would sell a lot of tickets. It turns out that the movie was pretty good, um, which helped. <laughs> um, and it also helps that at the end, uh, it sends out the message, you know, that at the end, uh, uh, Captain Renault joins the resistance, which kind of helps redeem the French a bit, so that um, helps sell the movie as well. I actually want to put out a little shout out to the head of the Securité in Casablanca, a man named Maurice Haroux, who basically would have been Captain Renault's equivalent in the movie. He was a member of the resistance. And he would aid Dave King in Casablanca. He would bail him out of jail a number of times. Um, he would bail other people who got caught out of jail a number of times. And he would also be supportive of the work uh, done to aid the refugees. Um, so in a sense, there was a real life, life Captain Renault. Sure. Sure. With, with all these ships and American supplies and everything coming into northern, um, to, to Morocco, um, and you also had, well, you had that, and then you had uh, Churchill was actually, he wanted a Jewish homeland. Churchill had a, a strong affinity mm -hmm. to Jewish peoples. He was very anxious to start a Jewish homeland. And Roosevelt, I think, was interested in, in creating a Jewish homeland. And, and my question was, um, uh, you had all these supplies and armaments and everything, and then you have Israel there with, with nothing, you know, and um, what was, was there a link at all between Morocco and Israel? Um, not, not during the war. Um, after the war, uh, after the war, uh, Moroccan Jews would begin to emigrate to the newly founded state of Israel, and there would be an exodus after the war, partly because um, they felt betrayed by the Vichy legislation. They felt unsafe, um, even though they still felt a great affinity for Morocco. The uh, many of them wanted to emigrate to Israel to uh, to join a Jewish state, where they would not be. Uh, third-class citizens anymore. I'm going to take the uh, moderator's prerogative and ask one question. Uh, okay. We're running out of time. But one last question. Uh, refugees are an enormous problem for us today, mm -hmm. and we're still struggling with how to deal with them. Could right. you talk a bit more about what we might learn from this experience about how to uh, deal with refugees? Um. <laughs> I, th I, um, I think compassion um, I th was what I would say. I mean, the U.S. consulate treated the refugees with compassion. People stepped in to aid the refugees um, with when um, they arrived in Casablanca. Uh, Helene Benatar, who was a Moroccan Jew, she was a lawyer. She saw what was going on down at the port, and she started a refugee basically a refugee agency. And she would spend the entire war helping refugees. 
and she would work with the, um, it's sort of a, it's sort of, she becomes sort of her own one woman operation NGO, and she would end up working with the American Army. And so I think that um, the idea, I think that, you know, it's sort of that public-private partnership is a possibility for helping refugees. I also think that um, the way that the French responded um, to what they viewed as a, a threat um, is, that there's a lesson there that that is not how to deal with them. There are, you know, people who arrive without resources, um, they should be helped and not put in prison or put in internment camps. All right, well, thank you. Uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, please uh, join me in thanking our speaker, Meredith Hindler. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And if I could ask you to...